Joel Parker, and this is Hell on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. This is the full extended interview of Dr. Alan Stern from Southwest Research Institute and Dr. David Grinspoon from the Planetary Science Institute about their new book, Chasing New Horizons, inside the epic first mission to Pluto. Their book describes the story of Pluto and NASA's New Horizons mission, bringing the reader backstage to hear the details and meet the personalities behind the building, launching, and flying of this audacious mission. Alan, let's start with you. What is your position and responsibilities on the New Horizon mission? Well, I'm what NASA calls the principal investigator for PI for short. And what that means is that I lead the entire mission, soup to nuts. Uh, everybody on the project ultimately reports to me. Uh, we have a fantastic team of people. About 2,500 men and women worked on New Horizons when we were building it. Uh, it's a much smaller team in flight, but uh, that's my role. And David, what was your involvement in New Horizons? Well, my specific involvement in New Horizons was uh, almost none. I mean, I'm involved as a member of the planetary science community who's followed this mission with, with great interest. And then there were a few times where my story specifically intersected. Um, one of the times, the many times when the mission was threatened, uh, the, it was uh, saved by a committee um, in the early 2000s, uh, the Solar System Exploration Subcommittee, that I was a member of. So there were times when I um, was in one way or another part of the story. And then uh, I also ended up working with the New Horizons team as a uh, communications consultant when they were uh, figuring out their strategy to uh, share the excitement with the world. And at the Pluto flyby itself, I was working as a liaison between the science team and the media. So I, I had some direct involvement, but mostly I'm on board this project as a uh, storyteller and as a, a, a space science fan who wants to share what really happened with the rest of the world. That's great, because it gives the book, you know, both the view of a knowledgeable outsider and insider, and I think that really comes through in the book. But before we dive into the book, Alan, give us some background of Pluto. Just what did we know about Pluto before New Horizons? Well, that's a really interesting question today, because we know so much more as a result of New Horizons and the exploration that we did. Uh, but before the flyby, we knew enough to know that it was going to be gangbusters. We knew that Pluto had surface markings. We knew that... Uh, its surface was composed of different kinds of materials, really exotic ices like frozen nitrogen and carbon monoxide and natural gas, methane. We knew that it had one giant satellite and four little ones, that it had a polar cap uh, and, uh, and an atmosphere, for that matter. Uh, mostly made of nitrogen, the same stuff that we're breathing here on the Earth. So we knew a lot of the outline of the Pluto system, some of the details about the atmosphere, but really the bodies, Pluto and its satellites, its moons, was terra incognita, or Pluto incognita. <laughs> That's exactly right. They were really points of light uh, with no surface detail, even if you used, which we did, uh, if you used the Hubble Space Telescope, because it's so far away, over 3 billion miles in the distance. Uh, it was really just a little smudgy sear in the distance, and we couldn't see any real detail on the surface. 
So he wanted to go from that smudgy dot to a real world. So we wanted to fly to Pluto. And I mean, flying to Pluto is challenging enough. In the book, you talk about all the challenges of getting a Pluto mission just funded and on the board. First half of the book covers the, what is it, 16-year history of the mission from idea to development to launch. And the second half then covers the nine and a half years of flight to Pluto. So going back to those roots, Alan, you talk about the Pluto underground. Sounds mysterious. What is that? <laughs> it's an old term. The roots of the mission uh, actually began in the really late 1980s when I was a graduate student at CU here in Boulder. I and a number of young researchers and young professors here at CU, but also scattered around the country in Arizona and in uh, California and in Maryland and uh, Massachusetts, other places, kind of formed a loose confederation we called the Pluto Underground to cajole NASA into studying how to do a Pluto mission. And we named ourselves after a group that had been very successful really early in the 80s called Mars Underground, also based in Boulder, uh, which had uh, succeeded in getting NASA to make Mars a high priority for planetary exploration. So we thought of ourselves as kind of Mars Underground 2.0, uh, <laughs> named Pluto Underground uh, for obvious reasons, because uh, our interest was in going to the other red planet, Pluto. Ah, the underground evokes the underworld, you know, which is very Plutonian in its way. It is. That whole path from getting the mission started is just really amazing. And it was a very long road. What were the major obstacles in getting a Pluto mission approved and funded? I mean, Pluto was the last unexplored planet. It should be like a no-brainer. You would think it's a no-brainer. You know, you would think that the United States space program, which is all about setting records and inspiring people with the first tunes to the moon and the first missions to Mars and Venus and every other planet, all the way up to Neptune by the 80s, would sign up to study the still farther planet Pluto in no time at all. But it turned out to be very complicated. There's a lot of pressure in the NASA scientific program for how to use the, the limited budget that uh, NASA has. There are a lot more good ideas around than there is budget. And so the competition is really stiff. And that exploration theme doesn't really cut it in the scientific world. And sometimes you might think NASA would make an exception and just do something for the sheer exploration value. But uh, that's almost never done. You really have to rise to the top as a scientific enterprise and be a more important use of NASA's funds, the limited funds, than other projects. And you have to show that, and you have to get consensus within the scientific community. Frankly, Joel, if we had known in the late 80s how hard it would be and how many reversals there would be and how much intrigue and even a little backstabbing there was going to be, I'm not sure that we would have really taken this on. <laughs> we thought it would be simpler. But as the book describes, it turns out it was kind of a maze. We were wandering around trying different things and getting successes and then defeats and successes and then defeats over and over for more than a decade. Yeah, the, the book goes into just great detail of those convoluted paths, and a theme running through the mission was persistence. You didn't give up. You knew this had to be done. That's right. You know, uh, we often were tired of it, tired of the uh, uh, 
uh, stops and starts and reversals and uh, defeats. But we also knew that if we really put our pencils down and quit, that no one would pick that ball up, uh, that it was really up to us. And so we just kept at it. And a lot of people kept at it. And uh, in the end, uh, I like to say that the uh, the White Hats won. (laughs) (laughs) So this had to get done, but it wasn't just for the sake of the science, which in itself should be a good enough justification, but there were timing issues as well in needing to get the mission done by a certain time. What were those constraints? Dave, you want to tackle that one? Yeah, that's one of the things that really comes across when you recapitulate this story, as we did in this book. I mean, I I had followed this story um, closely, pretty closely, you know, throughout all these decades that it was happening. And, and And I remember thinking along the way many times, this is going to make a great book someday because I can't believe what these guys are going through, especially if it succeeds, it'll make a good book. <laughs> but, but of course, at that time, you know, who knew if it would. But one thing that I became much more aware of as I sort of dove deeper into the story and, and recounted it with Alan and together we put together uh, this narrative was how much time pressure there was at different times on the team. You know, there was so much hurry up and wait where things got canceled. And then all of a sudden they said, the competition's on, but your proposal's due in three months. And these are massive things that usually take years to put together. But so, but on top of all that sort of um, time pressure that was introduced by, you know, sometimes politics and bureaucracy, there was this inevitable, unstoppable time pressure that had to do with the realities of uh, the construction of the solar system, of celestial dynamics, in that if you want to get to Pluto on any kind of a reasonable time scale, the way you do it is you go to Jupiter first and you get the gravitational boost, the slingshot effect of Jupiter. But that means in order to do that, Jupiter and Pluto have to be in the right place with respect to Earth. And that only comes around once in a while. So there was this ticking clock once everything got approved, uh, finally, that it had to be launched by this 2006 launch window or, uh, or that was it. It, you know, it, it would just not really be able to go to Pluto in any kind of a reasonable time frame. And beyond that, there were other issues. There's this, uh, one of the things that's interesting about the Pluto system, um, as you mentioned, was that it has an atmosphere. Not only does it have an atmosphere, but the atmosphere is in this complex relationship with the surface, which changes over time with uh, r- rather dramatically. And, and there was this idea that we had to get to Pluto before the atmosphere might collapse entirely because Pluto is moving away from the sun on its long, long orbit. It's non-circular orbit. It's been over uh, the last couple of decades moving away from the sun, which means that it gets colder. And as it gets colder, at some point, we think the atmosphere can really dramatically sort of freeze out onto the surface. So uh, there was a sense, get to Pluto before that happens, because we want to study the atmosphere. If you get there too late, the atmosphere might have disappeared. And then there's this other issue with it, that the amount of Pluto's surface, the illumination, the illuminated portion, slowly decreases, again, as a result of the very long seasonal changes of Pluto. So uh, there were a number of factors that uh, suggested if we didn't launch by a certain date and if we didn't get to Pluto by a certain time, you know, either we wouldn't be able to get there at all or the ability to really study the Pluto system would be compromised. So there was this racing against the clock in the background of all the challenges that the team was facing as the story went on. 
That's amazing. It's a drama just not created on Earth, but created by the universe to get things done. And the book really goes into a lot of great detail about all that. I don't think it's too much of a a spoiler to say the mission actually got built and flew by Pluto. So <laughs> saying that, Alan, can you describe the New Horizons spacecraft? Yeah, um, just a general description of the spacecraft. You know, uh, because we wanted to fly across the solar system this tremendous distance of 3 billion miles, at record speed, we had to build it to be very small and very lightweight compared to past outer planet missions like the Voyager. Uh, we really are a tiny little spacecraft, barely the size of a desk or a baby grand piano, weighing less than a thousand pounds, and that's everything. Communications gear, the scientific instruments, the onboard computers, the propulsion system, the power system, all of it. And all of it, of course, with backup systems. So there's two of everything, like Noah's Ark. The spacecraft is, um, you know, when you look at it, it's dominated by the uh, roughly two-meter diameter dish antenna that we use to communicate back to the Earth. The, the body of it is kind of a triangular shape uh, with a kind of hair curler-looking cylinder that protrudes. It's the nuclear power generator because we're going so far from the sun that we can't use solar power like most other spacecraft. And then the scientific instruments are mounted on the outside. This spacecraft, even though it was a lot smaller than past outer planet missions, so it could travel faster, was actually a lot more advanced because it was built with 2000s-era technology. So the scientific instruments had much more firepower, uh, lots more pixels to put on the planet, for example. Uh, the onboard systems had many more computers and much more uh, capability that we could uh, shape through software and software improvements as we flew across the solar system. Uh, some degree of intelligence on board so the spacecraft could take care of malfunctions uh, in flight because it's so far from home that some things like a fuel leak or a computer reset uh, just can't wait for help to arrive from Earth many hours later traveling at the speed of light. So uh, uh, really high-tech little spacecraft, uh, but we only sent one, and it absolutely had to work. There was no second bite at that apple when we flew by Pluto. I, I like how you mentioned throughout the book past space missions. You give nods to those, the history of space exploration that led up to New Horizons, and kind of like how you were just describing the spacecraft compared to others. In particular, the last exploration of the distant outer solar system of Uranus and Neptune was by the Voyager spacecraft. What struck you as the difference between the New Horizons and Voyager in the spacecraft and how the missions were run? Well, you know, David worked on uh, on Voyager when he was a graduate student, and then uh, he was personally involved in New Horizons. Maybe he should take a shot at this one. Yeah, well, you know, there's some obvious things about the way the technology improved since uh, Voyager was launched with, uh, you know, really early 70s technology um, because, you know, you don't use the latest technology when you launch something in 1977 or in 2006 because everything has to be proven and, you know, it, you know, you have to be conservative with what you can, you can include. So, so Voyager was launched with early 70s technology and New Horizons was launched with, you know, early 2000s technology. So, there's, you know, the cameras are much more capable. The computers are much more capable. You can pack much more firepower into a much smaller and less expensive package, which is great and essential because New Horizons had to be smaller and less expensive because, you know, the funding climate was different and that the constraints were much more severe. 
but you know, another factor is that both Voyager and New Horizons had this sense of being the first exploration of new worlds, which is, you know, a, a really exciting thing to witness and participate in. But there was a difference in that with Voyager, there was more of a sense that these were the first explorations, but we were probably going to be going back within our lifetime. So, you know, and certainly with Jupiter and Saturn, we've since sent orbiters to these places. With Pluto, now we do hope to go back because Pluto has turned out to be so just incredibly interesting that there's a growing movement to go back. But when New Horizons was on its way there, there was a sense really of a one shot. This is going to be our time to reveal this planet for all of humanity. And fortunately, the instrumentation was so much more advanced that the portrait you get from a single flyby of Pluto is incredibly rich compared to what we were able to do with Voyager. You know, just the details of the instruments, you know, thousands of times more uh, pixels, more, you know, more uh, information that can be captured in each frame of the spectrometers and of the, the cameras. And because New Horizons carried this uh, this telescope called Glory, this, uh, you know, this really capable uh, telescope, you could see um, details from quite a distance and you could see even the, well, you know, the, the non-encounter side of Pluto, the, the side that we did not get the close flyby of because Pluto rotates with a, a, a day length of 6.4 Earth days. You had to photograph the other side of Pluto from quite far out. But with this telescope that was on board, they were able to do that. So we do have globes now that have much of the surface of Pluto, even the side that we didn't go close past. So there were a lot of capabilities that New Horizons had, even with tiny size compared to Voyager, that were light years beyond what Voyager had. And that was great because it did have the sense of this is our chance to see what we can see about this Pluto system. We better do it all at once if we can. Yeah, you know, one of the challenges, and we bring this out in Chasing New Horizons, but one of the challenges that NASA handed us in this project was they, that they told us, um, you, can, you can do this, uh, we finally got permission to go and, and build it, uh, but NASA only had about one-fifth of the funding that Voyager had. Uh, so we had a lot of challenges for how to bring the cost down and do it, kind of break the mold for how to do very distant solar system exploration much less expensively. And we achieved that. Uh, we managed to do that. And, uh, uh, in the book we bring out, it's kind of, kind of nerdy that there's, there's a, you know, a chapter where we really describe the nuts and bolts of how through ingenuity and taking some risks and so forth, we were able to, to build it for two dimes on a dollar compared to Voyager. And, uh, the end result being much smaller and lighter and less expensive, uh, but more powerful than Voyager and its capabilities very much mirrored, in fact, the revolution in computing from the Voyager days of the 70s to, to now as computers shrunk from mainframes to laptops and ultimately tablets, and yet they were less expensive and more powerful, even though they were much tinier. And New Horizons is precisely analogous to that, but in the spacecraft world. One other difference between the two missions, and this also has to do with the advance in computers, and this is something we try to bring to life in Chasing New Horizons was a big difference in the experience of being at the encounter of Pluto with, with New Horizons compared to the experience of being at a Voyager encounter. And that is now with the rise of social media and the internet, it was a completely different experience for the people that weren't there 
in the room. Uh, it was much more democratic in that Voyager, you had to be in that one room where that computer monitor was with the team to really see the pictures uh, at first and long before anyone else saw them on the newspaper or when National Geographic came out or a couple on the news. But it was it was not very easy for people that weren't there to share in the wonders of uh, the planets that Voyager was revealing. By contrast, with New Horizons, instantly the pictures as they came in were being put up on the Internet and people were tweeting them and it was out there. And there was this sense of participation by people all around the world and it was much more possible to share it widely and feel that sense of everyone being there at once. And that, that was a really cool part of the experience of New Horizons and a very 21st century aspect of this uh, first encounter with a new world that was not possible the last time we, we uh, went to new planetary places with Voyager. That's a really good point because it's that just didn't exist for those previous first encounters. And even though the, the mystery of all you see is the mission control room back in the day and everything, New Horizons through all the social media was able to basically lift that mysterious veil and people could really see a lot of what was going on and experience it in real time, which just was phenomenal. The level of public excitement just like blew everyone away. Like, you know, the team was preparing for some level of response and then it was orders of magnitude more than anyone had <laughs> dared hope for. Always plan for more. And Alan, I was just going to say, I appreciate what you call those nerdy details in the book of how to put together a mission under constraints. In some ways, you could see it as, you know, a, a user manual for the next generation of mission builders. You know, the, the Chasing New Horizons is um, an interesting book because a lot of it's a very human story of uh, people kind of working against the odds and having setbacks, but ultimately making a triumph. And part of it's a political story. But part of it's a scientific story, and it's part of it's a tech nerdy story. And David, who did the majority of the first drafts, wove that all together like a, a very complicated helix. Um, as we go in and out of the different parts of the story, that time and again, as we move from the late 80s through the 90s, and we get a competition, and David and Goliath's story, and ultimately the New Horizons team wins, and then we have to build it racing against this clock, and then we fly it across the solar system, and just before we get to Pluto, we have this onboard malfunction just days away from flyby that almost jeopardized the whole shooting match. And then ultimately how gorgeous Pluto turned out to be and how scientifically important. It's really a, a wonderful job of kind of being four books or five books in one, in a way. It did really bring a nice uh, feel of the history. And as you said, weaving in a lot of stories, I thought, there were a lot of interesting coincidences of events on special dates that are mentioned throughout the book. For example, the, the Pluto flyby on July 14th, 2015, was exactly 50 years after Mariner 4 had its closest approach to Mars in 1965. And that was the first spacecraft, was it, to photograph a planet other than Earth? That's uh, absolutely right. Two years to the day from the first photographs of Mars. And, and I thought a particularly poignant timing coincidence was that New Horizons crossed the orbit of Neptune exactly 25 years after Voyager 2 flew by Neptune, which, before New Horizons, as we said, was the last 
first encounter with an unexplored planet. So David, Alan mentioned you were a student, a postdoc on the Voyager mission. Can you tell us about that moment, that event, the celebration that there was for the moment when New Horizons crossed the orbit of Neptune? Yeah, that was really neat. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's to Alan's credit that, you know, he, he recognized the significance of these, these anniversaries and sort of arranged forums, you know, for people to come together and um, celebrate and anticipate and mark these, these moments. Um, and that was neat because we had this gathering at NASA headquarters that was also um, broadcast out on NASA TV and can be found easily now on YouTube. Um, and, and it was really cool because we had a whole bunch of or, or several scientists who were students or postdocs on Voyager at the Voyager Encounters who had participated. Uh, people like Fran Bagenal, who was just starting out her career uh, on Voyager and then became a major participant in New Horizons and is one of the characters uh, you'll get to know if you read Chasing New Horizons and Bonnie Birati and John Spencer and Jeff Moore, all these people that were young puppies <laughs> like, like <laughs> us uh, doing Voyager who are now uh, scientists doing really important work, uh, persisted in their careers and who are all on New Horizons. And it was just a moment to take stock and have them remember what the Voyager encounters were like publicly and talk about their anticipations of the New Horizons encounter, which was coming up. And it had this neat intergenerational feel because, you know, we were also talking about our mentors who were sort of the gods of planetary science during Voyager, who had, you know, been the, the senior scientists on that mission. And we were sort of these young scientists learning from them. And then uh, the, the other aspect at this gathering was that Alan had arranged for a number of the very young scientists working on New Horizons now who were, you know, really the next generation who are being trained on this mission. And ho hopefully in the future, you know, we'll be having events at NASA headquarters to talk about their fantastic missions and, you know, <laughs> coming up later in the 21st century and reminiscing about the good old days when they were young scientists learning from the scientists on New Horizons. So there was this sense of passing the torch and the generations building upon each other, the scientists training the next generation and the spacecraft building on the heritage of the last spacecraft to uh, keep going farther into the unknown with, with new capabilities. I, I thought that was just a beautiful image of, like you said, passing the torch to the, to the young puppies of this generation <laughs> who will become the explorer's passing the torch a generation from now. And I love that connection of moving forward in exploration that I think is really echoed throughout the book. Alan, you alluded to the anomaly. And in fact, the book even starts with a teaser about the 4th of July fireworks anomaly. So what was that problem? And how did training and planning and other decisions help? Well, the problem itself, though, was that um, uh, we had uh, underestimated how much we asked the spacecraft to do in terms of uh, onboard computing activities on that particular day, which, you know, it was July 4th, so uh, we called it the July 4th fireworks for New Horizons. And, you know, you might ask, uh, geez, how could a team that had uh, flown this spacecraft for almost a decade have made a mistake like that? After all, we test everything on the ground-based simulator, which is a very high-fidelity model of New Horizons that we have here on the ground. And we test all the command loads before we put them up in the spacecraft. But 
In that particular case, the spacecraft was uh, busy trying to um, crunch some data, some pictures that it had taken of Pluto and its satellites at the same time that it was ingesting a big flight plan called a command load with all the instructions for how to do the Pluto flyby. And those Pluto images were sufficiently complex, more complex than we thought, because Pluto is more complex than we thought, but it took a lot more CPU cycles. And on the ground, we couldn't simulate what Pluto would look like because we didn't know what Pluto would look like. And the combination of those two things was too much. The computer gave up uh, its uh, it backup, uh, took control. We lost communications with the spacecraft. And uh, the end result of that was that um, all the flyby plans that had been put up on the spacecraft over a period of many months, programs and files and so forth, uh, got erased. And here we were just three days from um, the final flyby, uh, close approach. And uh, on the ground, of course, we knew the moment that we lost contact that we had a big job on our hands. Fortunately, the team had uh, gone through a lot of mission simulations, uh, over 40 of them, in fact, uh, practicing things going well and practicing things not going well. Uh, we had uh, hundreds of malfunction procedures that we had uh, uh, developed over the years for things that might go wrong, including this. So with all that preparation, we were able to swing into action. The problem, of course, was that three days in the ticking clock to the start of the flyby made it almost a Herculean task to get everything done, particularly when you're working with a spacecraft that's so far away and every move on the chessboard takes nine hours for the radio signals to get all the way up to the outer solar system on board the spacecraft and to get, to get confirmation as the radio signals come back that it worked. Light is fast, so but not fast enough. <laughs> it was very dramatic. And uh, uh, people were sleeping on desks and sleeping under desks and staying at work the entire time. It's a lot like that movie Apollo 13 uh, that Tom Hanks and uh, Ron Howard did. Uh, the scenes in the hallways at our mission control looked a lot like that. Uh, just with better clothing <laughs> compared, to, compared to 1970. But uh, uh, the book does start off with that problem. It doesn't tell you how we fixed it. And, and you can uh, the, then the book fades back to the discovery of Pluto. And ultimately, as we're on approach, uh, you see how it all turned out. Well, you'll you'll have to see that in the book. It really it it's amazing, and it really does get right down to the last moment. And depends on so many interesting details of previous decisions, like you mentioned in the book, how an early decision to get an additional simulator running seemed a little over the top and unnecessary at the time, but became essential to get this load tested and sent up to the spacecraft in time. That was one of the fun things about this story, you know, just from a storyteller's perspective, is that there were a lot of there were a lot of details that uh, became important later on. So you have this sense of trying to plant seeds in the reader's mind. Uh, like at one point uh, in the story, Alan insists uh, that the team should have a backup simulator in case something goes wrong with the main simulator during this crucial time when they're having to do all the planning for the flyby of Pluto, and they wouldn't have time to do all that planning if they didn't have a backup simulator. And, you know, okay, you think, wow, he's being really hyper-concerned about accidents that could happen. But on the other hand, uh, well, you know, it sounds like a good idea. But then it turns out during this crisis that if they didn't have that backup simulator that Alan had insisted on, you know, years earlier, just in case they needed it, that in fact they, they would not have been able to fix the spacecraft on time and execute 
the flyby of Pluto. So there are a lot of things like that that sort of circle back and become important later in the story that that get planted earlier in the story. All of that, all of what we've been talking about, really leads up to getting the science, having the spacecraft work, all the instruments work, and getting the images and all those data back. So I'm going to ask you both, but starting with Alan, what do you see as the significant results from the mission or how New Horizons changed our view of the solar system? Well, I think in terms of the science, the biggest paradigm shifts were uh, in turning that point of light, Pluto, into a planet and seeing how complicated and diverse its surfaces from glaciers and mountain ranges to ice volcanoes, old and young terrain, to canyons and uh, all kinds of other bizarre geologies across the surface, the complicated atmosphere, all that. We learned that small planets, and after all, Pluto's only about the surface area of the United States, much smaller than the Earth. But here this small little planet turned out to be as complex as worlds like the Earth and Mars, and that really knocked our socks off. And in fact, that's a big part of why we need to go back with the orbiter and study it in more detail and watch how it changes with time because it is so complex, the flyby just wasn't, it raised more questions than it answered. And it's also taught us that um, the other planets of the Kuiper Belt, with names like Haumea and Eris and Sedna and Makemake and Ixion, are likely to also be very complex and have a lot to teach us for planetary science in general. Whereas at the beginning, we thought of New Horizons and the exploration of Pluto as the first mission to the last planet. As the science evolved, as we were trying to get the mission and build it and fly it, we discovered that there are many more small planets out there in this distant region of the solar system. And then the flyby of Pluto turned out to transform New Horizons from being kind of the capstone, now we've seen this, to the opening salvo, calling for more exploration of these worlds that dot the outer solar system and that just beg scientifically for flybys of their own and coming back to Pluto with a orbiter mission. And so, David, same question to you. You're, you have more of an outside perspective, but you've worked on other missions. You work maybe a little more on the interior part of the solar system, but also as an astrobiologist. What are your thoughts about the significant results from this mission scientifically or culturally? Yeah, well, you know, my specific science is about comparative planetology, which is what we all do in some sense. And we find that we we learn more about how planets work in general when we get to know a new planet. And, you know, that feeds back into all kinds of important things, including understanding how our own planet works, which obviously right now is, is a very important thing for humanity to know. And there's this persistent thing that happens when we explore entirely new places in the solar system, which is that our expectations are always exceeded in a particular way, which is that we always think that new kinds of worlds are going to be less interesting than they are because we have these sort of geocentric perspectives. When we first got to the moons of Jupiter, really with with Voyager, you know, we thought they would be sort of cold and dead because small worlds are like that, but they're vibrant and alive and full of activity because we didn't anticipate, in that case, the tidal heating that, that resulted from being in orbit around Jupiter. So, you know, we assume that the rules that we know from, from our home planet apply elsewhere, and then they never do. And, and, and when we got to 
Pluto, again, as Alan says, the first exploration of a planet in the Kuiper Belt, of which we now know there are other planets out there. Again, you know, a lot of us expected it to be less active and less varied and complex than it is because, well, not only is it far from the sun, but there's no huge tidal source like on the moons of Jupiter. So why would it be active? Uh, but of course we get there and it's incredibly active and, you know, just alive with flowing nitrogen glaciers and evidence of climate change and varied surface terrain. So varied and interesting that people have taken to saying Pluto is the new Mars, <laughs> you know, <laughs> meaning it's like it's this new place in the solar system where there's just so much active terrain and interesting interaction between the surface and the atmosphere that it's going to take a long time to, to figure it out. So, you know, once again, we learn that the universe has just all these tricks up its sleeves to make different kinds of worlds interesting that we didn't know about. And it's not because we learned new laws of physics. After the fact, we can come up with theories and say, oh, yeah, nitrogen with this much heating from below, from radioactive decay, it will convect. And, you know, we can come up with the theories to explain why the why the surface of Pluto is churning. But we're never smart enough to anticipate. So it's through exploration that we learn how things work, not through just theorizing and without data. And and time and again, we learn that. And now we've learned that this small world on the fringes of the solar system is as interesting and active, you know, really as, as any other planet. And that is just a paradigm shifter and, and something it's just, you know, been a privilege to, to live to see. I find it so interesting that no matter, we have very, very smart people studying these things and working these things, but the universe is always more imaginative than we are. And I think we definitely Absolutely. find that out every time we explore a new place like Pluto. There's still this huge treasure trove of data, even though we have these beautiful results. Scientists are still pouring through the data, writing papers. And Alan, you talked about going back, a Pluto orbiter, you know, all these other ideas to learn more about what we briefly saw. But for New Horizons in particular, what's next? It flew by Pluto, dumped all the data, said so long and thanks for the fish and moved on. <laughs> what is it doing next? <laughs> Well, New Horizons is out exploring this third zone of the solar system called the Kuiper Belt. NASA approved a five-year extended mission in which we use the spacecraft as an observatory out there using telescopes and cameras and other sensors to study other worlds in the Kuiper Belt. We have a, more or less an astronomical observatory in the Kuiper Belt that's speeding through the Kuiper Belt. And currently, the spacecraft, which is very healthy, full of fuel, got power to run for 20 years into the mid or late 2030s, is targeted for another flyby, not of Pluto, but of a small building block world, a building block of planets like Pluto, that we have nicknamed Ultima Thule, which is a Norse term, by the way, that means beyond the farthest frontiers. Uh, this flyby is going to take place, get this, a billion miles farther out than Pluto. It's going to be a record setter. No exploration has ever taken place so far from the Earth. And it'll be on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day this coming year as we uh, enter 2019. You can celebrate New Year's with New Horizons. You can celebrate spend your New Year's Eve with NASA and your Christmas in the paper belt. We will be out exploring <laughs> and it will be all over the web. Uh, lots of press will be there as we set these records. And uh, then it will take us a year and a half to download all the data because uh, the distance is just so great. 
And after that, we'll look for new flyby targets and uh, do more exploration with the cameras and telescopes because New Horizons is the only spacecraft to have ever explored the Kuiper Belt. It's currently the only one that's ever planned. Unless we get another mission to go back out there, this could be it. This could be all that we learn for decades to come or even longer. So we want to really seize everything we can out of this resource called New Horizons while it's in the Kuiper Belt for the next five or eight years. And the New Horizons team is hard at work every week and literally every day to do just that. Well, gives us something more to look forward to. It's really a great story. And David and Alan, I really appreciate you being on the show and sharing a little of the inside of the story of chasing New Horizons inside the epic first mission to Pluto. And I hope to have you both back uh, after the exploration of Ultima Thule and see what surprises that brings to us. Thanks, Joel. It's, it's a pleasure to have a chance to uh, to talk with you uh, about the book. Thanks, thanks very much for having us on. Thanks, David, and thanks, Alan. That was planetary scientists Alan Stern and David Grinspoon talking about their book. Chasing New Horizons, Inside the Epic First Mission to Pluto. Portions of this interview were first broadcast on KGNU on May 15th and 22nd, 2018. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find this and past episodes, other extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.